if you spend too much time in New York, um, you kind of miss out on how the rest of the world lives. I kind of feel sometimes like, yo, Manhattan really is an island, not just geographically, but like experientially. Like we live on an island. There is very few places like Manhattan. As a matter of fact, the majority of the country is very different than the place that we live in and love and work and all these different things. So I was with my family, shout out to the Joneses in Durham, North Carolina, and we were hanging out with them um, for my fam- before my family reunion, and they were showing us all around the beautiful state of North Carolina, and we went to a farmer's market for breakfast. At the farmer's market, there was this giant, award-winning, prize-garnering watermelon, <laughs> weighing in at 181.8 pounds. That's a lot of family reunions right there in one piece of fruit. Now, when you're a preacher, you think about preacher stuff all the time. Most of you don't care about things like this, but I started looking at this watermelon, and I was, like, obsessed with it. I was like, I got all these sermon ideas from the watermelon. And I started thinking that, really, the spiritual life is like this. What God wants to do in your life, God wants you to be a trophy of grace, but the trophy won't be made out of metal. It's organic. It's something that's going to grow like a fruit does. As a matter of fact, when you think about Scripture, and every single time the Bible talks about growth, what it means to be firmly rooted and planted in Christ, what it means to thrive, what it means to abide with Jesus is to grow like a fruit does. Jesus is a gardener, not a mechanic. And growth in your life is more like a watermelon than it would be like a production of a Tesla. Life and growth in Scripture are always organic, never mechanical. 1 Peter 1.23 says this, Because you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. When Scripture speaks about the origin of any person's faith journey, it says that it starts like this beautiful, imperishable seed of God, and it's sown into your heart, and then it begins to grow. And so if you do not understand and uh, don't understand how the Bible presents growth through this organic botanical lens, you and I will miss a crucial part of what it means to follow Jesus because we will have the wrong expectations about what it means to follow Jesus. We're in this uh, book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians is a really phenomenal text. I think it can meet anybody no matter where you are on your faith journey. And we're now at a part of the scripture where most theologians have talked about uh, this as the fruit of the Spirit. And what we're going to read is what life looks like under the control of the Holy Spirit. So first, we see in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18, Paul says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit. And the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Two weeks ago, we talked about what life in the spirit looks like and that it was, there is a raging present war within us, that we have desires of the flesh. Most of the desires of the flesh could be summed up into one thing, self-consumption and selfishness. Everything points back to you, to the point that you would devour someone else in pursuit of you. And so Paul talks about these things, that these are desires are 
in contrary, they are opposed to what the Spirit of God wants to produce in your life. Two weeks ago, we focused on that, and today I want to take a peek at what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. So Paul is commending this church, and he's commending you also. He's saying, life controlled by the Holy Spirit just looks different. It's not all about you. It's not about selfishness. It's not about wildness, wild living and no self-control. It just looks different, and it looks more beautiful. Here's how Paul describes it in Galatians 5, through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, if you've been following us in this series, you'll know that um, this book of Galatians was written. The reason Paul put pen to paper was because there was a controversy happening in this church. There was a group of people who were starting to teach that in order for them to be right with Jesus, you had to follow Jewish law. Paul comes in and says, no, you do not have to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. By adding anything to Jesus, you take away from Jesus. And we've broken down the different types of laws there were. There's moral law, and there's also this ritual ceremonial law. Paul says ceremonial law is done for the person who would follow Jesus. The moral laws, how you live, don't lie, don't kill, these things are still in place. But then in chapter 5, we see Paul now start to turn to this description of life in the Spirit. And I was thinking about it all week, like, Lord, why does Paul now turn our attention to what life in the Spirit looks like? He's just been settling this controversy of what was happening. He's just establishing what is right theology and what is false doctrine. And it really hit me that the reason Paul was talking about the life under control of the Spirit is he's trying to raise their attention away from the list of things that you can do or can't do to what a life looks like with God. You know, when I would talk to couples doing premarital counseling, sometimes one of the questions that would come up is, like, how far is too far? They're meeting with me, a pastor, so there's certain expectations they have in place uh, about the nature of our conversation. But they would want to know, like, all right, pastor, how far is, like, what is over the edge of sin? And, like, tell us what sin, and we'll, like, be right at the edge of that. <laughs> and most of the time, I, I never answered that question, mainly because if I were to give them an answer, I would be setting them up miserably for a life together. The question they should be asking is, pastor, what does a life look like where we can build genuine intimacy and passion in our life? So that no matter what is happening in our life, we can go back to the well that we've been digging since we've been dating. The other question is, Pastor, how do we live a life that glorifies God, that's a, that would give us a good name to our friends and family around us? What does it look like for me to put my, put my body under subjection and actually follow Jesus? That's a question I'm interested in answering. Now, those two questions are much more beautiful than giving people a list of do this or don't do that. So Paul was telling these Galatians, listen, I'm I'm trying to take your mind off of simply the right and wrong list. And here's why this is so important. If the nature of your relationship with Jesus is 
somehow fitting within the box of doing the things that are right and abstaining from the things that are wrong, you are going to have a miserable relationship with Jesus. It will only lead to discouragement or pride. You'll be discouraged because you didn't do numbers two through seven on the list, or you'll be prideful that you did do numbers two through seven on the list. And I can guarantee you, and I'm speaking from personal experience, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It only leads to discouragement or pride. Instead, Paul is not saying rules don't matter. He's not saying the commands of God don't matter. They do matter. But he's trying to raise their attention to what your life could look like if you lived in step with the Spirit. What God wants to do in your life is make you more than a rule follower. What God wants to do in your life is to change you from the inside out so that you would be permanently changed and transformed and that your life, like a delicious fruit, would be something that other people can enjoy and they could feast on. Not just about you doing a list or not doing the list. So Paul gives them this description of what life looks like in the spirit. And Lord knows this world desperately needs people who are full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, I, I know a lot of people, I've, I've met a lot of ministry people and pastors with millions of people who follow them, and by God's grace, God gives gifts to people, but I have never been as inspired by them as I have been by people who simply possess the fruit of the Spirit. I can think of a pastor in Lexington, Kentucky right now who doesn't stand on any stage week in and week out, but truly, having had spent some time with him and seeing the fruit of the Spirit on like full display in this dude's mind, it, it blows my mind, and it's the most attractive thing I've ever seen. It makes me want to be like him. I'll never forget being in settings with him where everything inside of me would have said, it's time to clap back. It's go time. And he was gentle. It was bugging me out. I'm like, yo, how are you gentle in this scenario? Shoot back. And he just had this subtleness inside of him. And I said, yeah, that's, that only God can do that in your life. God wants to make you a trophy. God wants to make you a blue ribbon award winning watermelon <laughs> that other people can feast on. But it won't come by simply adhering to a list. It's an invitation to walk with the Spirit. It's an invitation to step by step walk with the Spirit and allow God to change you from the inside out. And this world desperately needs people like this. Now, a couple of quick points before we dive into the text. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It's not that you can get a little bit more joy, like, oh, my peace is good. I'll, I'm, I'm good on the peace. I just need a little bit more joy. I need items one, three, and nine. It's not that. The fruit of the Spirit would be like describing a watermelon. It has a rind. It's oval. Inside is pink. And it's full of water. That's why they call it a watermelon. And normally there's seeds. And it's this, if I were to describe a watermelon, if you take away any piece of it, it's no longer a watermelon. Or not one that I would eat, at least. And so when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he's not talking about your natural inclinations of different small things that you would work on here and there. Like, well, I need a little bit more patience, or I need a little bit more love, but rather that if you submit your life to the, to the direction and the control of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will produce this fruit that's going to look a whole lot like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. 
So, to be perfectly honest, as I was preparing for today and reading through this uh, description of the Holy Spirit, what it does, what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, I mean, a piece of me got a little bit intimidated and a little sad um, because I see areas of the fruit of the Spirit, which for me are just underdeveloped. So, it's a watermelon, but the rind is not green. It's not that vibrant green, you know what I'm saying? You can kind of tell that's what it is, but it's not one that you're going to run to first. I think if we really looked at the fruit of the Spirit and what Paul is saying, it's humbling. It's humbling because we could never do it on our own. So the first one is agape, it's love. And agape love, here's one description of it. It is not born out of emotions, feelings, or familiarity, or attraction, but from the will and as a choice. Agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. So when the Bible talks about love, it is not talking about feeling the warm and fuzzies for another person. And a lot of people struggle with understanding how God can love them because if you look at your own life, you say, well, I don't love me. How could God love me? Here's why. Because love is, a, is faithfulness and a commitment to the other person expecting nothing in return. It's a commitment. It's a choice to love. Love is always a choice. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see him praying. Everything inside of his flesh did not want to go to the cross. He's praying and he's sweating drops of blood. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. God's choice to love you is intentional. It's not that when God thinks of you, he has warm and fuzzies. God loves you because God, love God is love. That's what he does. He loves. He makes the choice to love you. And if the hope for your life is that your life will be suitable enough for God to love you, man, oh man, you are setting yourself up for failure. And when I think about my own life, does Jordan Rice live with the faithfulness and the commitment and the sacrifice without expecting anything in return? Oof. Lord, we need your spirit. The second one is joy. Joy is a settled state of confidence and hope. Joy and happiness are two different things. You can have joy in suffering, but you can never have happiness in suffering. Why is that? Because joy and happiness are two different things. I will be happy if I go to Popeye's after church and the spicy is ready. I'll be happy. And the line is short. Joy is much more deeply rooted than that. Joy is a settled state of confidence and hope in your life that no matter what happens, joy persists. My family and I went whale watching a couple of weeks ago in Maine, and Maine is the largest producer of lobster in the country. They do all the sustainable farming. And um, one of the things that was really interesting as we were on a boat about to go whale watching and, uh, were all of these buoys you saw in the ocean. So all of these buoys were on top of the traps so that fishermen could see there and locate where their traps were so they can capture the, the lobster for people. And these buoys were just all over the ocean. Here's the thing about a buoy. A buoy, that little red thing that exists above the surface, a buoy is visible in every weather condition. It could be raining, it could be a, a tsunami, and a, and, a, and a buoy would always retain its float above the surface because buoys are not dependent on weather. There is something about the way they are constructed that allows them to exist and to be visible in every condition. Now, happiness requires that everything is good in order for you to be above the surface. 
Joy is a settled state of confidence that exists in every single season. And y'all, when I think about my own life, when I think about the waves of life that happen, I just don't know that my joy is always as strong as the buoys that I've seen in that ocean. So I won't go through the whole list in this much detail because I'll be depressed in a couple minutes. <laughs> but when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, peace, peace is rest or quiet, or stillness of your heart. I think about how I struggle with dissatisfaction where I am. Patience, Lord, Lord, Lord. The ability to endure difficult people and situations without giving into anger or giving up hope. The Bible has a lot of translations. Uh, I think there should be a New Yorker translation of the Bible, <laughs> which gives us certain permissions that it doesn't give other people. I was walking on the street the other day, and I was walking behind someone they had their head down on their phone. They were walking slow. They were distracted, so they were zigzagging. So I'm trying to walk in front of them, and they're zigzagging in front of me, and I started to daydream about tripping them. I was like, what would happen? <laughs> Not that they would fall hard, just a little trip, just to get out my way. That patience that I lack on the street is also something that I feel in my heart with, uh, with my kids, with other people around me sometimes. Kindness, tenderness, um, goodness, that we are holy, pure, and righteous. That's what God wants to grow inside of you. God wants the you on the outside to match the you on the inside. God wants the you of your declaration to match the you of your transformation. God wants there to be one you, that, you are, that there's a goodness to it. If you ever had like a good meal, a good meal is not just that one bite was good. A good meal is that that whole thing, the, the entire progression that the chef presented was cohesive and it was good. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Faithfulness means that we are reliable and steadfast and unwavering. Gentleness, man, what is gentleness? Gentleness requires removing all unnecessary force to accomplish a given task. So gentleness, if you are a gentle person, if, you, if the fruit of the Spirit is grown inside of you, it doesn't mean that you're not even um, confrontational. It's that you're gently confrontational. That you remove all unnecessary components of that confrontation. When I think about my own life, you know, even with the, my kids, uh, when my boys were younger, and uh, from time to time that they got diaper rash, because I was a loving father, I had to clean them. I could not let them stew and remain in filth, even if I knew it would cause them pain to change them. So what would happen? I would clean them, but by using the least amount of force necessary to get them clean. What kind of parent would I be if I just slammed them on a changing table inside of rough, you know, roughhousing them as I change them, knowing that they're in pain? That's the way we treat people, though. We treat broken people with rough hands. Christians, we are not known for being gentle. We think it's weak. We hit double tap so fast on the clap back on social media. We are so happy when we see people ex display anything but gentleness. That's deception. Lord, help us to be people who have the fruit of the Spirit growing inside of us. Last one is self-control. Self-control is the ability to discipline yourself, set boundaries, and rule over your actions. Now, one of the things I want to say about the fruit of the Spirit, 
three things, actually, as we dive into the text. Certainly, I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, we would see how lacking our lives are to be mature, matured in the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a symptom of us not walking in step with the Spirit. We're walking in step with everything else, with culture, with our jobs, with our pursuits, with our selfish ambition. And it's an invitation for us to walk in the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit, so that this Holy Spirit can transform us. So a couple of brief points about what does it mean for us to grow into the people that God wants us to be. Number one, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of our effort. Paul is very precise to use the words fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is why this is so important. It's not about you trying harder, although it is totally appropriate for you to try. Like I said before, if it is dependent on you and only you, you're only going to have two roads to that, discouragement or pride. But a lot of people are very discouraged, as I was earlier when I was thinking about this text and seeing the lack in my own life. And that's when I was t- it hit me like, Lord, this is the fruit of the Spirit. You want to grow this in my life. And check this out. Since it is a fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit is God. And so it's going to grow in you like all things do with grace. It's not the fruit of your boss or the fruit of your professor. It is the fruit of the Spirit of God, which means that grace always has to have the first and the last word in this conversation. Some of us are so discouraged because we have left grace out of the equation. It's because we've been treating this like it is the fruit of our effort, not the fruit of the Spirit. I read this quote this week about grace. Grace is always despite and not because of the human condition. God's gracious, gracious action is never consequently, but always nevertheless. It is life from the dead and justification of the ungodly, not the reward of the righteous. You know, this week when I was going through this scripture and it hit me that this is the fruit of the Spirit and that means we always need to make sure that grace has the final word in our lives. Some of us don't want to return to what it means to walk in the Spirit. We don't want to return to the disciplines because we just feel guilty that we haven't done them enough. Or we feel guilty that we don't know how to do them right. And so we stay away from what it looks like either to be in community or to uh, walk in the, the means of grace like scripture reading and prayer because we feel like a hypocrite. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of us in this room right now begin your prayer life with the first five minutes all being self-loathing, God, I'm so sorry I did this, I'm so sorry I did this, I'm so sorry I did this. There's a point for confession, but grace needs to always have the first and the last word. It is God inside of you that has given you a dissatisfaction for your life. God is already working on you if you notice dissatisfaction. It is always the fruit of the Spirit rooted in grace, not the fruit of our effort. Number two, growth is dependent on climate and care. So we do play a part in our spiritual growth. It's not all about God. He doesn't just zap us from above. Um, growth is dependent on climate and care. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says this, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
So scripture gives us an admonition, an encouragement to pay very close attention to how we walk and to be very intentional about that because the growth in your life is dependent on some of the climate and um, care, the care decisions that you have made. Where you are planted will determine how you will grow. I've had a couple of moments in my life that were what I like to call like born-again moments. The first happened 20 years ago when I was on college campus in Morgan State, and I read some scripture, and it felt like scales dropped from the front of my eyes, and I knew that my life would never be the same. The second happened when my kids were born, and as I sat in the delivery room and met them for the first time, I just, something washed over me, and I knew that my life would never be the same. I was now privileged and responsible for this wonderful, beautiful life. The third time happened when I was in Jamaica and I took a bite of a mango in Jamaica. <laughs> and I knew that my life would never be the same. I had been eating, I grew up eating mangoes on Fordham Road. And that's, the mangoes on Fordham should not be even called mangoes. They put the little seasoning on them, but they are not the same. And here's why. Because the climate in New York City is not conducive to mangoes growing. You can get something that kind of looks like a mango, but you will not get a delicious, vibrant mango anywhere in the five boroughs. You have to fly somewhere where the condition is actually amenable to this thing growing. The word of God in your life is a seed. It has the potential to grow award-winning, prize-winning fruit of the Spirit. What is lowering the, our ability to see this growth in our life is we're planted in the wrong soil. And so God's invitation to us is to, one, evaluate where are we planted. By planted, I mean what are the decisions that you have made that have set your life on a certain trajectory? The decisions that you make will set your life on a certain trajectory, and you will engage with or not engage with the means of grace because of the decisions that you make. And this determines the climate in which we will grow or or not grow. So in my brain, if I had all the money in the world, my house would have just so many plants. I would have like an urban jungle in my apartment. Reality says I'm really bad with plants, and I've come to accept this about myself. First stage is acceptance. And uh, <laughs> my wife and I had, uh, we had a plant in our apartment that this joint was on the struggle bus. Like this joint, was on its last leg. It had like mad leaves kept on falling off. The ones that were still on were brown. And we sent it to my mother-in-law, her house. And my mother-in-law is phenomenal with plants. She just has the greenest of green thumbs. And she actually sent me a picture of it in between services. Like when I went to the house a couple months later, I was like, oh, like where's the plant we gave you? She was like, it's right there. I was like, no, 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 that's a tree. Where is the, the little terrible plant that we, that we gave you? She was like, that's it. What she did through her mastery and her skill is she put it in the right conditions. And by putting it in the right conditions, she didn't change the seed. She didn't change it from its foundation. She just moved it to the right conditions. And here's the thing. There are so many Christians, you're thinking that something is wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the seed of the word of God in your life. You're just in the wrong conditions. You're isolated. How are you going to grow when you're isolated? You've never actually done what the scripture tells you to do. Scripture says, confess your sins to one another. You get to DNA group and you'll start talking about the weather. When we put ourselves in the conditions to grow, we will grow. It's going to hurt. Please hear me when I tell you this. It's going to hurt. 
It's going to be disorienting. As a matter of fact, one of the things that's interesting, sometimes when you move a plant from an unhealthy to a healthy condition, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Sometimes you'll see leaves fall off. you say, oh, something is wrong. Like, no, 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 nothing is wrong. It's preparing itself for growth. This term of DNA groups and growth groups, some of you will make decisions to put yourself on a trajectory of isolation and inconsistency. That is not the condition for the fruit of the Spirit to grow in your life. Others of you will make the decision to plant yourself, to be consistent. Now, your life is not going to change overnight. You're not going to be, you don't grow from zero to 180 in, in, in two days. Eight weeks is going to be an investment. It's not going to be the story of your life. But where might you be if you make the decision to be consistent, to put yourself in a different climate and allow the seed of God's word to grow in your life? That's what I want for you. Matter of fact, sometimes I'll meet people and they say like, oh, pastor, I'll see them on the street and they're like, oh, I'm a part of Renaissance and I'll, I'll talk to them and I realize they come on Sundays and for a lot of people, that is an amazing first step that you just come on a Sunday. And for you, if you're dealing with church hurt or just questions about the faith, just being here is amazing. Please hear that. There's other people though, they've been a part of churches for decades. There's no church hurt. There's no reason. They just approach the, the church with a consumerism. That's all there for them to feed them. And they don't take actual steps into, to nurture their own faith. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that you are planted where you can grow and thrive. Last thing, um, growth is gradual. Growth is gradual. Like I mentioned just now, um, you know, for any fruit, when I think about my own life, when I think about the things that God has done, it starts with the seed being buried in the ground and for an extended amount of time, zero happens visually. All it looks like is you wasted the seed. You bury it underground, and there's an organic, natural birth process happening underneath the soil, but nothing is visible at first. And then when something is visible, it's not impressive. It's not edible. It's not winning no awards. But give it some time in the right conditions and watch it grow. When Jesus and the scripture writers talk about life with the Spirit of God, he's telling us that growth is gradual. So do not read the Bible for two days and say, like, ah, it's not working. Don't join a DNA group or a growth group for eight weeks and say, ah, I tried it. Community stuff doesn't really work. Give it some time and allow God to grow in you over a longer period of time. Allow the fruit of the Spirit to grow inside of you without giving up. Uh, Benjamin Bloom, he's a um, psychologist, and he talked about the five stages of transformation. And uh, this is one way of looking at things. This is certainly not the only way. Here's what he said about transformation. Transformation in your life means you becoming a newer you. Not improved, but like something really radically taking hold of you and changing you from the inside out. The first part is awareness. And this is where most Americans stop. Most Americans stop at, do I know something or do I not know something? And the question is never, do you know this, but rather, how has what you know transformed your life? I'm glad that you know about these things. I'm glad that you know about generosity, but it hasn't made you a generous person. Would people from the outside look at you and say that this is a characteristic of your life? So I don't want us to get stopped, to stop at awareness. I heard the sermon, I read the scripture, I listened to the lesson, I watched the YouTube video, and now I'm aware of this truth. We want the truth of God to go deep down into the soil and to grow into a mature plant in our lives. 
And normally, it starts with awareness. The second stage is curiosity. Curiosity means you start to ask yourself the question, how can I apply this truth to myself? Now, we're not just saying, I heard this, but now we're trying to internalize this truth. We still haven't done anything with it yet. We're just now asking ourselves the question, how do I live this thing out? The next step is valuing. Now, we've become aware of a truth. We've been curious. We've asked ourselves the question. And now we start to put a little bit of our feet in motion and to move out a little bit. Valuing is when you start to make small decisions in pursuit of what you have learned. So now we're moving in the direction of, uh, of what we've heard and what we have learned. The last one is prioritizing. This is, I mean, the second to last one is prioritizing. This is when a truth has, you've seen the fruit of this in your life. And now you're starting to shut other things down so that this thing could grow in your life. The last one is ownership, where now this truth, this seed that's been sown in your life, you orient your entire life around this truth because you own it. The example I've given before, it's probably the best one I know of, is um, my journey with uh, the Sabbath. I struggle with anxiety, not just um, clinically, but also just in general. And I was talking to my therapist, and I was talking to the pastor and mentor friends. And about a decade ago, I heard a sermon on the Sabbath that for 24 hours, I need to stop. And I need to trust that God is God without my effort. I heard the sermon. I was sharing it with people. I was like, this is amazing. And I did absolutely nothing with it. A year or two later, I heard another sermon on it, and I was like, yo, dag, I, need to, I need to pick that up. And I started to think about, like, all right, what day of the week could I do this in my life? I picked a day, Friday. Still didn't do anything with it. Another six months to a year passed. I took a class uh, with Pete Scazzaro, and I said, you know what? I'm going to put this thing into motion. And I started doing a Sabbath where for 24 hours a, day, a week, I would stop doing work. And for the first several months... For 23 of the 24 hours, I just felt guilty that I wasn't working. But for that one hour, I got a glimpse of what life looks like being untethered, being present to my family and present to God. And then I started to see this thing grow inside of me to where it started to be something I prioritized that I was now thinking a month out about how I could make sure I had a Sabbath every single week. And now it's something that I own. If you know me, you know that it's extremely rare that I will go a week without stopping and resting, and delighting in God, and delighting in the things that bring me joy, and contemplating who I am. Now, this has been a 10-year journey for me, and to be perfectly honest, I have not learned one new fact in the last decade. It's all the same information that has worked its way through my life. You know why? Because growth takes time. In your life, if the Holy Spirit is shining a light on areas of your life that need development, the Holy Spirit has given you an invitation to I want you to hear this quote from Paul in Galatians 6 and 9. Do not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm grateful for your people. More importantly, Lord, I'm grateful for your spirit and the invitation that you give us to keep in step with your spirit. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Lord, we certainly have failed many times. But that's because we have relied on ourselves and not on you. So Lord, may we submit to your spirit and to the grace that fuels us. May we accept your invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.